It's time for truth. Ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for truth exists to glorify God through the edification of his saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I am your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to another episode of It's Time for Truth. Uh, We are glad that you have joined us once again. This is episode three of our podcast, uh, our first season of our podcast. So we are endeavoring this season to discuss our church distinctives. Uh, But again, I just want to emphasize some of the unique elements that we want to have uh, as part of our podcast uh, show. We do want this to be a platform for teaching, so that's definitely uh, part of what we're doing. But we also want to have good conversations. Uh, We want to have engaging interviews with people in our church. We want to interview other Christian leaders and persons of interest that uh, we think would be valuable for you to to hear from. And we'll also address various news items uh, when we think it's appropriate for us as pastors to weigh in on things that are going on. Uh, in the world or in the world of Christianity. And so uh, we look forward to those opportunities. Uh, There's lots of things going on in our world. And so uh, we look forward to trying to bring a biblical worldview to those subjects here periodically. Uh, But to start off with, we wanted to uh, speak to the matters of our church distinctives. We think that's a good place to start. And so we introduced that last time and started the discussion on the Lordship of Christ and a biblical worldview. And so we'll pick up on that here in a moment. But first, uh, I sadly must inform you that uh, Jim is not with us. I, I mean, he's still alive. He's not dead, uh, but he's not with us in studio. And so once again, it is just Mark and I today. Jim is still in Texas uh, doing the good work of a dad, helping his son get moved to a new state and finding a good local church for him to attend. And so we'll pray for Jim's safe return. And we'll look forward to Jim and his beard being back with us. Uh, hopefully for our next episode. So hope I didn't scare any of you there. Uh, He's just not with us in studio, but he's still on the top side. So, all right. Well, first, uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, March 17th and 18th is our creation conference. It is coming up here very soon. It's titled Volume 2. And uh, I want to uh, just highlight a little bit about that for you. Um, the, The key element that we wanted to let everybody know about is what it's all about. Why Why would you want to come to this creation conference? Because there's many of creation conferences. I actually got an email about one happening here in the next couple of weeks, or maybe it's next week. And uh, so there's lots of creation conferences, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but what makes this one uh, special or unique? And uh, most creation conferences, as our flyer says, uh, deals primarily with evidential apologetics. They present many Uh, effective arguments for the existence of God and against Darwinian evolution. Um, That's well and good. Volume 2 is different. Uh, This is a conference that offers uh, a unique approach to the subject of creation and science. Uh, It promotes a God-centered perspective on creation, and um, it examines the history and the philosophy of science. And in doing so, 
we are looking forward to a time together uh, distinguishing in this conference the unique connection between the Reformation and the birth of modern science. Additionally, uh, there's going to be focus given to the formative contribution of the Puritans to the development of modern science. I, I think that's going to be an exciting element of this. Uh, and there's going to be an emphasis on their God-saturated worldview and precise methodology of study. And so the scientific community uh, today st stands on the shoulders of these giants and, and sits in the shade. I, I really like that phraseology. That, that, that What happens today is in the shade of the worldview that came before that provided the development of science. And so uh, sadly, too few people uh, appreciate or even know about these roots, these Christian roots of modern science. And the danger is, is that uh, we can end up despising the tree that shades the endeavor. Uh, and so this conference looks to offer encouragement and biblical guidance to rediscover the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom of God's creation with the goal of stewarding science for God's glory and man's joy. And so Pastor Manny Pereira, uh, he is the father-slash-father-in-law-slash-grandfather uh, of some people in our church, and so we are looking forward to uh, having him come. He was a friend of mine in seminary, and he has a, a unique scientific background before he entered the ministry, and so we're, uh, we're very much looking forward to his time with us at um, this Creation Conference, Volume 2, and, as well as to welcome him to our church. We are going to have the Q&A that uh, is not going to be done at the conference. It's going to be done at our church on Sunday evening. That's going to be March 19th, and that'll be at our 6 p.m. service in Middleton. So um, if you have uh, an opportunity, please consider joining us. We would invite you to register on our website at truthfamilybiblechurch.org, and under the More tab, click on Conference Registration, and we'd love to see you there. Well, today we want to get back to our discussion of our first distinctive, the Lordship of Christ and a Biblical Worldview. And since this is part two of that discussion, I want to encourage you to listen to part one first. Uh, this will make a whole lot more sense if you uh, connect these two parts together. And we left off last time by recognizing that we need to identify what we mean by the Lordship of Christ in terms of what is his jurisdiction. We talked about the idea and the recognition of definition uh, of Lord as being a title for someone in, in a exalted position of authority. And so we established the, 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 the bedrock of the meaning of that term. And, but we recognize that that term is legitimately used for a variety of positions, earthly positions that, that people can hold. And one of them, uh, legitimately, biblically speaking, is the, the lordship of the husband in the home um, as he holds the position of authority over his wife and his children. But when we talk about the lordship of Christ, what is the extent of his lordship? What does he have authority over? And so picking up on that, first of all, Lord is identified as a name or title for God. The Hebrew Adonai uh, is translated Lord. And uh, I want you to listen to a couple of Old Testament texts that relate to God and his jurisdiction. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, 
who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And so here Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of the Bible, is the God, the Lord, and there is nobody above him. Every other so-called God or anything with the title Lord is under his lordship. I love how Joshua says it in Joshua 3.11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. The God of Israel, who gave you this Ark of the Covenant, he is Lord of all the earth. That is, that is to say, God's jurisdictional realm, wherein he has the right and the authority to act and to govern, to legislate, and to command obedience, uh, that is the whole earth. And so when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are talking about the God-man. We're referencing Jesus as Lord, but Lord over what? Well, when it comes to the lordship of Christ, we're dealing with a person who was a man and a very humble man at that. He had no place to lay his head. Uh, he wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a home, a wife, and children that we are referencing. Uh, he, he wasn't a local or national magistrate or lord with any civil authority. He wasn't a priest in the Jewish system. He wasn't a lord of the religious system like the Sanhedrin Pharisees. He was a rabbi, a teacher, but he was no lord in terms of holding office during his 33 and a half years on the earth. Why then do we call him the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is that his title is commensurate with his person, that is understanding that this man Jesus is God. And so rightfully so, the, 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 the title of Lord, of Adonai, of the God of the Old Testament, whose jurisdiction is the whole earth, uh, Jesus is God. He is identified in a variety of places as having the name of Yahweh. Jesus is God. So therefore, he has the right by virtue of his nature to be called Lord, and his rightful jurisdiction, as Joshua said, is the whole earth. But his title as Lord also belongs to him, because of the realm he has conquered as a man. Though his earthly life was confined to a small country in the Middle East, what he accomplished had massive eternal implications for the whole world, uh, including the heavenly places and for all time. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, For this reason also, and that reason that he's referring to in verse 9 is in, comes in verse 8. It's a reference to... Christ's obedience to God to the point of dying on the cross. And so because of that, for that reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, and, and at the name of Jesus there is not the name, but at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. That's the title. That's the, that's the exalted name given to Christ to the glory of God the Father. And so the point is, is that, that Lord is that which has been accomplished through the conquering efforts of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, and he has therefore been exalted and given the name by God 
as Lord. And so when we say that Jesus is Lord, we are acknowledging that he holds the most exalted position of, of authority over all. And that's because he is not dead. Uh, he rose from the dead. He was given a name and he was seated on a throne described as the right hand of God. And that's stated also in Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God. And so listen, it, it sounds maybe okay to say that Jesus is Lord above all, as long as we're talking cosmically, as long as we're talking, it's great if Jesus is Lord up there in the sky. He's Lord over the heavenly jurisdiction. He, is, he has the right to look down. He has a right to be interested in what's happening down here. Maybe having the right to move some pieces around when it benefits me, or maybe uh, I may be happy to have him as Lord of my salvation. But other than that, uh, I, I delight in having an autonomous and independent free will that answers to no one. And actually, what I decide with my own free will he is then bound to allow and approve of me unconditionally. But that, friends, is not what we mean by the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ is not something uh, that is simply theoretical or something that is distant from us. Uh, it's up. He, he's in heaven, and that's where he reigns, and he just simply looks down upon the earth, and uh, we'd like it if he does some of our bidding for us, uh, that if he's active, it's it's just active to make our lives better. But when Peter said in Acts 10.36 that Jesus Christ is present, continuous, active, third-person, singular verb, Jesus Christ is, Peter says, Lord of all. He was not saying Jesus was Lord of all or will be Lord of all. Jesus Christ from his exalted position, Peter was arguing, where, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he is kurios of all. Nothing is outside of his jurisdiction. Nothing escapes his purview of authority. It, it is the most, actually, it's the most insane statement to make if it is not true. And the way that the apostles preached and taught and defended the gospel was with this claim. Jesus is Lord. And that's what, what bothered uh, the, the Romans at that time also, that, that, that there was another Lord besides Caesar. Jesus is Lord of all, and they had been commissioned to declare that fact. And they all, all the apostles, they laid down their lives for that truth. Jesus was given that title because he had been given all authority in heaven and earth. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus said had happened after his resurrection. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we love the Great Commission, but we need to make sure that we ground it in the preamble to the Great Commission in Jesus' own words. And in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so all authority means lordship 
And the job of Christians throughout the ages is to declare his authority over everything and everyone. And when we make disciples, we teach them to obey his word, which reveals his will for all those under his authority. And that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. It's the entirety of Scripture that reveals the will of the Lord, the King of the universe. And so the gospel is the message that Jesus is Lord. And when someone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they really need to believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead in order to give him that position and what it means now that he is Lord. And so when our first distinctive is to say that we believe in the Lordship of Christ over all, we're just declaring basic Bible teaching, basic gospel truth. But what tends to be lost on many Christians and pastors for that matter is the extent of the lordship of Christ over every other sphere of authority and down even to the smallest activity of our lives as we live as embodied spirits. Jesus is Lord over all means Jesus is Lord over politics, government, education, entertainment. Jesus is Lord over marriage and parenting. He is Lord over singleness and work. Nations, states, counties, every noun, right? What's a noun? Well, for all of those who have passed the, I don't know, what is it? First, second grade? A a noun is a person, place, or thing. Jesus is Lord of every bit of that, which means that his word is authoritative and has something to say about how we live under that authority. So we are then to bow our knee and to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And to have him as Lord is to apply his will, his word to our lives through loving obedience to him. Part of that great commission involves a recognition that when someone comes to faith in Christ, they enter into a student-teacher relationship. They, They become disciples, that is, learners. And learning what? Learning about Christ and his will through his word. What is it that the, that the Lord of all seeks to, uh, seeks to have me to do, seeks to bring the world under? And, and that's what we want to identify. But one of the challenges today uh, has been a long history of reducing the gospel to not much more than an intellectual ascent where salvation has often been seen and promoted as an experience where you pray a prayer or go forward at camp or or church, but there isn't a robust gospel of the sinfulness of sin and the cost of discipleship. And so we have been really dealing with a form of Christianity that is sought to make converts rather than disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some of the implications of an understanding of lordship really go to the heart of what we preach as the gospel. It goes to our view of sanctification. And I'm sure we'll talk about a a lot more of that in future episodes. But so when we talk about the lordship of Christ and the scope of his reign, the extent of his authority, we immediately get into a discussion of a biblical worldview. Because when Jesus is Lord, that means his word is relevant in every area of life where he has authority. And where does he have authority? Uh, I think it's Vody Bauckham that likes to say, airware. It's, it's everywhere that man can be. Um, 
and and everywhere that 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 exists is under the authority the lordship of Christ. And so since Jesus has authority over everyone and everything, uh, then we have to work at applying his word to every area. And so as a church, we say that there is no subject that is off limits for the church to address from scripture. So then we will talk about politics, for instance. And and I bring that one up because if you are like me and you've grown up in the church, there has been a significant amount of discomfort among evangelicals about getting political. And some of that is a reaction against a lot of the political activism, activism and lobbying of some of the fundamentalists. And to be fair, there is an, uh, an appropriate balance to be struck where there can be an overemphasis, an overinvolvement, and, and a misplaced hope in political engage- entanglements. There's certainly an, a ditch to fall into on that side. But a reactionary church, as well as being influenced by a kind of Gnostic dualism that we've been talking about on Sunday nights, that separates the secular from the sacred has led to a large-scale retreat of the church from speaking about political and social issues. Churches have gotten out of the idea of education in many ways. Uh, There's very few now Christian schools. There are still some, but very few, and many of those ones that actually do exist, uh, are typically worth a whole lot for their worldview education. But pastors who are supposedly committed to Bible exposition and focused on the gospel uh, have done a poor job of equipping their people to live in this world in a way where the Bible uh, is to be applied to every area of life, which includes things considered to be political. And in that vacuum of retreat where the church and pastors have no longer considered all of life as relevant to our living out of our Christian faith and that we separate the secular and the sacred, in that vacuum arose a group of people who had not been thoroughly discipled by their pastors and seminary professors. And and so they were discipled by their public schools and others who inculcated in the younger generation a social justice approach to Christianity. And those so-called Christians have corrupted the gospel alongside with uh, their willingness to speak about politics and social issues. So there are lots of people today in the church that are happy to have uh, more uh, robust social political conversations and even sermons. Uh, But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that uh, it's all out of whack and, and it's an error we have a lot of issues that we're dealing with. More on that another time, I'm sure. But we at uh, TFBC are, are seeking to preserve the biblical gospel and to apply the lordship of Christ to every area of life, which includes matters considered as political. So that means we care about gender issues, what marriage is and represents. We do speak about politics and elections. We We do seek to apply God's word to matters of education. We want to understand how to think Christianly about everything so that we can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And and why is that in the purview of the church? Because everything is spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, for we walk, excuse me, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We must not approach the Christian life with a dualistic separation of secular versus sacred. Rather, everything belongs to Christ, and so we want to glorify him in everything. And so, whether that's eating 
or drinking or whatever we do, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that is the smallest, most ordinary routine things to the seemingly big and great things of life. All of it is to be done with a view of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so finally, I want to just give a brief description of what makes up a worldview. A a worldview is how a person relates to life in terms of God, man, sin, and salvation. A worldview is how a person relates to life in terms of God, man, sin, and salvation. Now, everyone has and operates on a worldview. Everyone lives their life in relationship to what they believe about God, man, sin, and salvation, even if they don't recognize it or, or realize that. An atheist, for instance, views the world as being void of a creator, a personal God who is sovereign and active in the world. And so that affects the way he thinks, how he processes information and data. It affects how he votes, what he reads, who uh, who he speaks to, where he spends his time. And since there is no God in his own mind, then he has a view about man. Man is an evolved animal, That has implications for his view of himself and others. Atheism leads to many abuses of other people because man is not viewed as made in God's image. Atheists who rise to power have committed the worst atrocities against other human beings in world history. Why would that be? Well, because when there is no God, then they don't answer to anyone for sin. They do not acknowledge the law of God, and so man becomes a law to himself arbitrarily governing, and when unrestrained, he seeks to call good evil and evil good. And so when it comes to salvation, there is no salvation in God, and so the individual becomes his own God, and when atheist, uh, when atheist gods so-called gain power, then the state becomes the savior, and once again, people are abused. And so that's just an example, just a little bit of an of a understanding of how a worldview plays out in the life of everyone, including those who would not even necessarily say they have a worldview. Because, but everyone does, has, does have a worldview, and it relates in one way or another to their view of God, man, sin, and salvation. And so we as Christians in the church, however, are seeking to apply the Bible to everything, living our lives in such a way that what the Bible teaches about God and teaches about man and sin and salvation, those things are lived in obedience to Christ because he died and rose again and has been exalted to the right hand of God, being given the title of Lord. Jesus is Lord, and that is the starting place for ministry at TFBC. That is the starting place for an understanding of a biblical worldview. And so our, our aim is to is to teach and to study. Our aim is to to develop in our own minds and lives a biblical worldview that honors Christ in how we think about everything and how we then live out our lives under the Lordship of Christ. Well, that's just a little bit of our distinctive related to the Lordship of Christ and a biblical worldview. And that's all the time that we have for truth today. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.